Oh, wow. Good morning, everybody. It's lovely to see you. Um, if you don't know me, my name is Rob. I'm based in the East these days. Um, but been around Gateway for about five years now. So um, it's really good to be here. Um, thank you to the band for leading us so well. Um, just really sinks in with what I want to say this morning. And it's my privilege to bring the Bible to you this morning. Why don't we pray before we begin? Father, in our worship and in the things that have been brought to us this morning, that we have just seen how amazing you are. Um, We've been encouraged and we've been challenged and provoked to have such a bigger view of who you are, a bigger view of your goodness, a bigger view of your grace, a bigger view of your love. And we want to pray this morning that as we look into your word and see what the Bible says about your heart for the nations, that, Father, that this message would just resonate with everything we've heard this morning, that you are wonderful, that you are glorious, and that you are worthy of our praise. Amen. Well, this series is all about getting in sync with God's global mission. It's about understanding that God's heart is to bless the world. And what we're trying to do in this series is see the bigger picture, I suppose. Get caught up in God's heart and God's plan to draw a worshipping community from all nations, from all peoples, from all tribes. And while we would recognize that salvation is intensely personal, it's about me, it's about it is well with my soul. But actually, when we read the Bible... Um, we shouldn't just be asking, well, what does this mean for me? Uh, there's, there's a deeper message. And I do think that if we're not intentional about it, then we can miss the main thing that we're intended to see. I don't know if you recognize this, but sometimes there are many stories, and they seem to have quite a simple message on the surface, but actually they have hidden depths that maybe we'd never seen before, And just to get us into this, I just want to give you an example to show you one to see what I mean. I'm sure you're all familiar with Raymond Briggs' famous book and TV show and movie, The Snowman. Um, I'm sure that all of us have seen this at Christmas time, the movie with, you know, with Alla Jones singing that song, it's walking in the air, right? We We all know that one. And when you think about this film, this book, isn't it just a magical story about a boy who builds a snowman and it comes to life. It's as simple as that, right? Well, actually, I found out that Raymond Briggs actually wanted to call this book Everybody Dies. Now, I don't know if you can imagine the editorial meeting when they sit down to discuss this one. And, And maybe there was a moment when they said, Raymond, it's not quite as catchy as the snowman. But the strange thing is that this book is actually about death. And he did write it to introduce children to the idea of mortality and death. And and listen to what he said about the story, right? This is him, I quote. The snowman melts. My parents died. Animals die. Flowers die. Everything does. All right. So this simple message that seems to be about a boy that builds a snowman actually is this really profound message about helping children to engage with death. That there's a deeper truth 
And there's almost a sense in which, how many of you have thought of that before? How many of you have given your attention to the fact that there might be some deeper purpose to that simple story about a boy and a snowman? And I think the same thing is true about the scriptures. Do you know, one of my favorite verses in the Bible about how this kind of thing works is 2 Timothy 2 verse 7. Whereas here is Paul, he's, he's close to death. And he's writing some deep doctrine to Timothy. And we have to remember that Timothy is this really capable, experienced Christian leader. And yet Paul says to him, reflect on what I am saying. For the Lord will give you insight into all of this. Reflect, he says, that there is a place in the Christian life for us to stop and think and chew it over and meditate on it. There is a place in the Christian life where sometimes you're not going to get what God wants for you the first time. That perhaps something that God wants to say to you is not going to be easy. And Paul here is saying, you have to think about it. You have to put some effort into it. You have to reflect. But then he also has this wonderful promise of God's grace, that the Lord will give you insight into all of this. It's as if he is saying, you know, as you chew it over, as you dig deep, as you give yourself to what it is that God has for you, he is going to come and he is going to give you revelation and he is going to bring wisdom. And I think that so much of what God has and what God wants to say is like this. We really have to think about it. And this morning, we're going to be looking at Genesis 12 and the call of Abraham. And what I really want you to get this morning is that these verses have so much going on. They're much more profound. The message is so much deeper than what they seem on the surface. They are about God's global heart to save the nations. And I don't know whether sometimes you read the scriptures and you just get the sense that so much of the Bible seems to be about Israel. It's about the people, it's about the land, it's about their history, their kings, their ups and downs, their laws, their temple. But actually, there is so much more going on. And we need to think and we need to reflect in order to get this. Do you know the bigger picture in all of this is that God blessed Israel that they might be the blessing of the world. God's master plan was always a global church. God's master plan was always a global worshipping community. And the, where, the place where we see the seed of this for the first time is in these verses to Abraham. And I think it's amazing that Here we have, right almost at the beginning of the Bible, this missionary mandate. God saying, my heart is a heart for the nations. And then right at the end of the Bible, in Revelation, we get a glimpse of what this is going to look like at the end. I know you're all familiar with Revelation 7, verse 9, where John has this vision of heaven. John has this vision of this uncountable crowd, this diverse global representation And he says, after this I looked, and there before me was a multitude that no one could count. Praise God for his generous, 
gracious heart that the redeemed community is a number that we cannot count. It goes on and it goes on and it goes on. From every tribe and nation and people and language. And you know, when you look at almost what is practically the very last verse of the Bible, Revelation 22 verse 17, it says this, The Spirit and the Bride say, Come, and let everyone who hears say, Come, and let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone, anyone who wants to take of the water of life. What a glorious mandate of God's heart for this world that we live in. Everybody come. God's heart is to save the whole of the world. God's heart is that every nation, every people, every tribe should be represented. God's heart is open and wide. And all of this begins in Genesis 12. Let me read it to you. We're just going to look at the first three verses this morning. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Last week, Nigel introduced us to the book of Genesis. And what we saw was that the state of this world is really summed up by the story of what happened at Babel. We see a people in rebellion. We see a people whose hearts are intent on independence. The key verse was Genesis 11 verse 4. Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens. Why? What what is going on in this tower? What is it about? What is its purpose? So that we may make a name for ourselves. You see, they want to build a civilization. They want to build a society where God is out of the way. And this is really what the Bible calls sin. Do you know, I think the easiest way to remember the word sin and what it means is it's the word with I in the middle. It's about self at the center. It's about putting me in the driving seat of my life. Sin is not about being a mass murderer. It's much more subtle than that. Sin is about me wanting to be the captain, the pilot, the king of my own life. I want to be in the driving seat. It's me at the center. That is the essence of sin. And God frustrates and confuses their language and they separate out and nations are born. And what I think we really need to understand, which Nigel was saying last week, is that this is the world into which Abraham is called. This is the state of the world. This is the way things are. People's hearts couldn't be further away from God. They're trying to build their own thing. They're trying to have DIY religion where they are at the center. And yet the amazing thing is, And we've been hearing this morning about how good our God is. The amazing thing is that we see God break in again. 
we see God speaks to Abraham. And what we see here is a God of initiating grace. You see, a God who chases after us. A God that chases you down. A God that breaks into your life. And what I want you to see this morning is that Abraham is really the model of what this is. Do you know, I think it's really important to recognize God's grace in all things. Do you know, God is not like a team captain in sport. God doesn't pick people like people get picked for the school team. I wonder how many of you had that experience where it's PE at school and there's that moment where there are team captains and they're going to pick people to be on their team. And it's always the best, isn't it? It's always the fittest. It's always the strongest. It's always the most skillful who gets picked first. Do you know, when I was at school, they used to call me banana foot because whenever I kicked a ball, it went off like that or it went off like that. There was no way that I was ever going to get picked to be on the football team. I wonder how many of you were that person that was picked last. I wonder how many of you was that person who wondered whether there is a place for you, whether there is dignity for you, whether there is hope for you. I wonder how many of you had that crushing experience of being picked last, of being overlooked, of being cast off. But you know, that's not how God works. And I think the thing to remember is that Abraham was not some standout guy. God loves him because that is who God is. It's undeserved favor. It's giving you what you don't deserve. That is the essence of grace. And so I want to tell you something before we get cracking on with this this morning about Abraham that I think tells us what we need to know about him, what we need to know about God, and I think will give us hope this morning. The Bible tells us very clearly that he was a worshipper of other gods. He was an idol worshipper. His heart was given over to something else, to someone else other than God. And Joshua 24 tells us this. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Long ago, your ancestors, including Terah, the father of Abraham and Nahor, lived beyond the Euphrates River and worshipped other gods. That's the reality. That is what was going on in the heart of Abraham. He wasn't looking for God. He wasn't seeking the truth. But I, it says, but I took your father Abraham from the land. God broke into his life. God chose Abraham in initiating glorious generous, reckless grace. And that's why I was so glad that we sang that song this morning. That song that begins with, oh. Did did you get the sense of the, oh, the overwhelming grace? Oh, it chases me down. I couldn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Oh, Oh, the overwhelming, never-ending, reckless love of God. This is the God that we know. This is the God that we serve. 
This is the God who is coming after the nations of the world. So as we look at Genesis 12 this morning, there's three things that I'd really like us to focus on. First of all, it's very clear that God promises Abraham a land and a nation. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. So in the context of Babel, where people have been spread out in rebellion against God, God's plan is always to create a people. God's plan is always to draw people back in. And this promise to Abraham really is the beginning of this. And when we look at the story of Genesis, what we see is an old man and his barren wife. And by miracles, by the intervention of God, they become a family. And that family becomes an extended family. And that family grows into a nation. And that nation possess a land. And in that land, God reveals his plans and his purposes. Secondly, we see God promises Abraham unconditional blessings. I will bless you, God says to Abraham. And you know, blessing is the opposite of cursing. When we read Genesis 3, we see that after the fall, the terrible consequences of all that happened is that the earth is under a curse. Look at Genesis 3 verse 17. This is God speaking. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles. You will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. You see, God is saying that the fall has cosmic consequences. That there is going to be frustration. There's going to be hardship. There's going to be death. And yet here, God's plan to undo all of that starts to be put into place with Abraham. And what I want you to notice is that there's no conditions. There's no preconditions. God doesn't say, I've chosen you because you did this. God doesn't say, I've chosen you because you didn't do that. What makes him special is that God's grace is upon him. That there's a hope, that there's a future, that God is committed to this world, that God is committed to his creation. The third thing we see here is that God promises Abraham that he is going to be a source of blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the key bit here is all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And we really have to jump through to the New Testament to fully understand what this means. But I think there's two key things for us to understand here. That all peoples on earth are going to be blessed through Abraham. Firstly, because from him is going to come the Savior of the world. From Abraham is going to come the Messiah. And also he is going to bless all of us because he is the father of salvation by faith alone. How is it that we're saved? How is it that we are made right with God? What is it about? What's the secret? Salvation is simply trusting God's 
hope and coming with empty hands to receive it. It's as simple as that. God provides everything. We bring nothing to the table and we come with empty hands. And when we see what Paul has to say about this, Paul so clearly understands that what God is saying to Abraham here is the essence of the gospel. It's the essence of our hope. Listen to Galatians 3 verse 16. The promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. Scripture does not say and to seeds, meaning many people, but and to your seed, meaning one person who is Christ. You know, here is Paul writing to believers who aren't Jews, and he builds a whole theology of grace, not just on a word, but on the tense of the word. Paul is saying that the blessing that God has for you is concentrated not just in the seed of Israel, but the seed, the seed singular, the true son of Israel, Jesus Christ, the son of God. That the emphasis here is from one to all, that all the blessings flow through Christ and Christ will come from you Abraham, because my purposes and my blessing is on you, that you might then be the means of blessing the world. So how does the world get blessed by this? Again, listen to Galatians 3. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, And announced the gospel in advance. There it is. He announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. Saying all nations will be blessed through you. You see Abraham wasn't saved because he obeyed the law. There wasn't any law then. He was saved because he believed what God said. He believed the provision and the promise And the grace of God. And Paul says that is the gospel. Announced in advance. Way before Jesus ever came. Something of the truth of it was revealed in that moment. I am pouring my blessing upon you. And it's all free. Because someone who is coming is going to pay for it all. You see the only difference between us and Abraham. Is that he looked forward. And we look back. And Jesus understood this when he said, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And he saw it and was glad glad with the eyes of faith. Jesus is saying, Abraham looked forward and he understood something of what I was doing. He understood something of the grace of God. That out of his bloodline was going to come one who would be the savior, not just of Israel, but of the world. So every person who ever gets blessed, every person who ever gets to heaven, every person who ever knows forgiveness, finds it through Abraham's greater son. And that's what it means when God says to him, and you will be a blessing. So I guess the key thing we need to ask ourselves is, who is this for? Who is this for? 
Have a look at this ambiguous picture. I don't know if you've ever seen these famous ambiguous pictures where you kind of look at it and there's lots of things going on and you have to look again and again and again. And you know, maybe you see some faces and then you look a bit more and there's some more faces. And then you look a bit more and then you see, well, maybe the whole thing is a face. And then, then you gaze a little bit more and you see, well, there, maybe there's some faces within the faces. I think the Bible is a little bit like this, you know. Everything is not revealed at the beginning. There's a growing progression and you have to look. And as you look and look more, what you see is this amazing message that God's heart is a heart for the nations. And what I'd like to do to finish off this morning is just give you a sense of the progression of the truth of that. I want you to get a sense that almost in every key decisive moment in the history of Israel, God said to them, it is about you, but it's not just about you. It's about what I'm doing for the world. Now, we've already seen that God promises this to Abraham. I think the next big moment in the story of Israel is when they're just about to enter the promised land. And I guess you could ask the question, You know, why has God set them apart as a nation? Why is God going to give them the law? Why is God going to give these people the land? Listen to what Moses says about this. As they're standing, as it were, on the shores of the river, ready to go into the promised land. What is it that God says to them? See, I have taught you decrees and the laws as the Lord my God commanded me so that you may follow them into the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Observe them carefully. Why? Why does it matter how you live? Why does it matter who you are? Why does it matter about your laws? Because this will show your wisdom and understanding to the nations, Moses says. It's about you, but it's about the world. And then the next big moment, perhaps, is when the kingdom has been established and and they've just about to build uh, and to consecrate this temple as a place of worship for God. And, And Solomon prays on that great day when the temple is to be dedicated. And listen to what he says. As for the foreigner who does not belong to your people Israel, but has come from a distant land because of your name, For they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm when they come and pray towards this temple. So this is a temple in Israel for the Jews. And Solomon grasps something and says, no, this is a temple for the nations. This is for the world. And isn't it amazing that when Jesus went into that temple and he turned over the tables because they had turned the court of the Gentiles, the one place where the Gentiles, the non-Jews, were able to come into the temple and worship. That one place had been turned into a marketplace. And Jesus said to them, my house will be a house of prayer for the nations. And then when we get to the, the prophets, Isaiah was writing at a time when There were international tensions. There were nations on every side. Israel were wondering if they were going to survive. What's God's plans and purposes for us? 
And the prophets speak of a Messiah that's going to come, not just for the Jews, but for the world. There's an enlarging of the vision again when Isaiah says, I will make you a light for the Gentiles, that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. And it's amazing that when we jump through to the Gospels then, and we see Simeon, that prophet, who speaks and he says, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may dismiss your servant in peace, for your eye, my eyes have seen your salvation, and you have prepared in the sight of all nations a light of revelation to the Gentiles. So here is Simeon, and he's holding the Lord Jesus Christ. He's holding the Savior, and he says, This is for the world. And Mary and Joseph marveled at the truth of that. It's amazing then that when we jump through to the Gospels, Luke's Gospel gives a genealogy. And sometimes genealogies feel dry. It's hard to know what they're about. But it's amazing that when Luke gives the genealogy, the bloodline of Jesus, he doesn't end at Abraham. He goes right back to Adam. And he says, Jesus is the son of Enoch, the son of Seth. The son of Adam. What is Luke saying? Jesus does not just descend from Abraham. He descends from Adam because he is for the world. And after the resurrection, Jesus meets with the disciples and he says to them, Go and make disciples of all the nations. And then at Pentecost, the Holy Spirit is poured out and they speak in tongues and they pour out into the street and they declare the grace of God in the nation's languages, the reversing of Babel. And then in Acts 10, Peter is given a vision and he goes and meets Cornelius and he realizes that God is going to save this person and he's going to fill him with the Spirit just like he's done for us Jews. And Peter has a moment of revelation. He has an enwidening of his vision. He sees the global heart of God. And he says, now I realize it's true that God does not show favoritism. But he he accepts every nation. And then Paul comes onto the scene. Who spills passion and energy. And finally his blood declaring the truth. That God is a global saviour. Listen to what Paul says to the Romans. We received grace and apostleship to call all the Gentiles, all the non-Jews to obedience that comes from faith for his name's sake. Why? Because to all in Rome who are loved by God, called and given grace and peace. Paul understood that God's heart is bigger than the Jews could have ever have conceived. The spirit and the bride say come. Let everyone who hears say come. Let anyone who is thirsty it says almost the very last verses of the Bible says, come. And you know, as we draw this to a close, there is a sense and we can say, well, how should we respond? What does this mean for us? 
And I guess the easiest thing to say would be to say, well, do you have the call to go? Or perhaps to say, well, if you don't have the call, do you have the heart to serve and to help those who do? When you see the global reach of God's heart, maybe you should be digging deeper into your pockets. Maybe you should be praying for the nations more. But what I would like to finish with is for us to just reflect again. Reflect on what I am saying, said Paul. Reflect on this global heart of God. Reflect on this global reach of God's heart. Because this global sense of who God is, it's devotional. It inspires worship. Because what he feels for me is what he feels for the world. And what he feels for the world is what he feels for me. My prayer this morning, praying with Paul in Ephesians 3, is that we may grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ. And to know this love that surpasses knowledge. I love that. Paul says, I want you to know something that you could never know. I want you to try to grasp something that is always beyond your reach. In fact, that word there he uses, surpasses, is a word from sport. And it means to throw a ball further than you could ever throw it before. And it's almost as if Paul is saying, as far as you get, there is more. And when you get there and you throw it more, there's more. And then when you get there and you throw it again, there's more. And however far you throw that ball, God's love surpasses even that it's a lavish generous love beyond what can be known church can we reflect on that can we just try to hold that truth in our hearts that something of the love that you know of God is a global love A heart that stretches to the nations. And that kind of God is so worthy of our praise. Amen. Amen.